My next guest is Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs, Asset Servicing at BNY Mellon, who's one of the world's leading ETF service providers. So in a nutshell, they offer a full suite of capabilities to manage ETFs, from custody to liquidity to sub-advisory services. They really do it all. I always like to describe BNY as handling everything in the background of ETFs, so everything that you don't always see. And Ben himself, <laughs> I mean, this is someone who was involved with the creation of what turned into iShares back when it was Barclays. He created the ETF distribution platform at SEI Investments. He then went on to join ProShares and create their ETF platform. He was part of the founding team at Wisdom Tree, uh, just an unreal ETF background. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Ben, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Nate, for having me back on the show. Longtime listener and second-time caller. Well, how Thanks. have you how have you been? You know, I, I I thought I briefly saw you in passing at the uh, exchange conference a few weeks ago. I was just telling ETF Trends Laura Kruger that thing was like a a, a blur. <laughs> how has everything been going for you? Great. Uh, still still trying to recover from the conference for sure. That was more people than I've seen in probably the last two years combined for sure. <laughs> well, well, look, I have a a number of topics for us to get into. And I, I thought what we might start with was something that I was just discussing with Laura Krigger, which is this FINRA proposal on, quote unquote, complex ETFs and mutual funds. And, and I'll tell you, Laura did an excellent job of laying this out from uh, an investor's perspective, why investors should care about this. I'd love to hear your uh, industry perspective, because you visit with ETF issuers day in and day out, obviously. Uh, you want to see your asset servicing clients have success with their products, right? Whether they're complex or not, you want them to have success. So what is your take on this FINRA proposal, which seems to be moving pretty quickly? Yeah, I think this proposal certainly has caused quite a stir. It was the hot topic at the ETF exchange conference from a few weeks ago. I mean, look, I'm not a lawyer, but after 20 plus years in the industry, I feel like I could play one on TV. And it's absolutely fair to say this could have wide-ranging effects in the industry at large, not just uh, for ETFs. But but let's limit it to the ETF side of things. I'm sure Laura did a great job going through kind of some of the implications here, um, certainly for investors. Um, but again, this has some significant impact uh, potential for the industry. Now, FINRA has put out this notice uh, to members for comment, but it really does feel like it's the first step in a regulatory process. And it would appear to be a pretty traumatic regulation of self-directed investors, um, some of which are really driving the growth of many of our clients' products. And um, not surprisingly, I expect the industry um, already has and will continue to strongly push back on the proposal. Um, but, but again, FINRA is a little bit of a different animal compared to the SEC from a regulatory standpoint. Um, and, you know, this is really a, a, a different approach they have taken. And, you know, they don't have the same set of procedures like the SEC that our, you know, clients um, who are asset managers are used to. They, they could just issue the rules. But I think very quickly, the two key issues here for ETF issuers, and again, our clients are around the bucketing what is considered a complex product. So what products could get caught in this net? There's no standardized definition, but um, again, the proposed um, uh, rules 
are really around anything that uh, is not uh, a plain vanilla product. So it's not just about products that are considered risky, but it could also include even products that are trying to reduce risk, like buffered products, which are you know designed to try to mitigate some of that volatility. The other big issue, Nate, is really around what these restrictions will really mean and how much um, or how little access will self-directed investors, um, uh, you know, uh, have to these products. And again, um, one of the reasons I love ETFs is the, the simple fact that they have democratized many uh, corners of the investment management landscape. But, but here we could be um, potentially taking a step backwards. It does not appear that these regs will apply to advisors where they would have to pass a test or, or incur some kind of additional qualification. But I think there are certainly questions of even if they have the requisite knowledge for, for some of these products, um, but, but it would have some, some effects uh, potentially uh, for those investors who got restricted would be pushed um, to, to use an advisor or, or again, uh, blocked from access uh, on some of these platforms. So, again, wide-ranging implications potentially for the industry um, you know, which which could have some impacts on on future innovation and and an ability to raise assets in some of the some of the newer products that we've seen come to market. Yeah, and it, from my perspective, it just seems like Finra would be exercising so much uh, subjectivity. Again, how do you define complex? And if you are going to put a test in front of investors to test their knowledge, how exactly do you go about doing that? And I thought you made a good point in terms of some of these products uh, that are out there that would be deemed complex. They're actually used to mitigate risk and volatility. Uh, Phil Bach, who you may know, longtime ETF industry veteran, he uh, recently publicly commented to FINRA on this, and I, I want to read you uh, one of his quotes. He said, for many clients, cookie-cutter investment advice is entirely appropriate. For others, their goals will best be attained through more complex strategies. It's easy to dismiss those clients as overly aggressive gamblers, but in my experience, the exact opposite is the case. And I, I think that hits on that. I actually, Ben, saw another uh, quote just this morning. Uh, Bloomberg had a nice article on this proposal, and it was from uh, Bruce Bond, of course, who's behind the, the buffer products that are out there. And he said, whenever you single out a certain group of products, especially when you call them complex, it scares people. And I, I thought that was a really interesting take because what FINRA would be doing is putting certain connotations around products. And I don't know that that's healthy. I think it's always good to make sure we're educating investors on how these end products work. And if there are some some flags that are raised to help an investor conduct some more due diligence, due, uh, due diligence on a product, I think that's good. But you know, when you start putting scare tactics into investors by labeling things as complex, when they could be used to actually mitigate risk and volatility in a portfolio, that can be problematic. Yeah, Nate, without a, without a doubt, and and I do think um, you know certainly um, there's a, there's another issue uh, as well um, regarding this proposal that also gives the platforms or the advisors who are you know transacting in these products some additional pause as well. Um, by the, the the potential that you know they could incur some additional liability or um, again um, you know make it potentially uh, uh, problematic or as you said scary for for those advisors to 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 jump into some of these products as well. So it's not just about the investors; it's also about the the advisors uh, as well. 
Well, uh, as Laura mentioned in our prior segment, if you're an industry participant or you know somebody uh, tangentially, tangentially associated with the space, get your public comment into FINRA ASAP. Um, okay, Ben, so you and I exchanged emails last week and we batted around a few different topics. And I, I flagged several that I found particularly interesting. And we'll, we'll see how much time we uh, have here. I'm not sure if we'll get to all these, but, but let's try. We'll go rapid fire uh, style. And I want to start with the Vanguard share class patent. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware, one of my 2022 ETF predictions was that this would become a hot topic. And so you and I are going to help my prediction along here. Uh, but I think most listeners are aware that Vanguard has a patent that allows them to offer ETFs as a share class of their mutual funds. And this can offer uh, several potential benefits, which we can certainly discuss. But this patent is up next year, which that means any fund company could attempt to pursue this. So I, I guess a couple of questions for you. Number one, are you hearing more about this from ETF issuers, like issuers who are interested in using this approach? And then two, how do you think this is going to play out? Because I'm not sure if you saw this last week, but the Financial Times had a piece where they said the SEC might actually have some concerns around this structure, uh, that, that it might not you know, exactly be easy for a fund company if they do want to pursue this, because the SEC may uh, put up a few roadblocks. So, so what are you hearing on this topic overall right now? Well, well, Nate, your prediction is is right. It's the volume of chatter on this topic has definitely increased. Um, it's it's fascinating to watch, um, and we've been engaged with many of our clients on this topic. My my opinion or belief is that we do expect a firm to attempt this structure next year once the Vanguard patent expires, but I do not expect this to be widespread. We'll probably see more Bitcoin ETF filings um, still pending. Um, versus these uh, filings for, for share classes. But really, once this patent expires, other firms will no longer need to deal with Vanguard, but they will need to deal with the SEC. And that's where the concerns lie at this stage. So the issue was always less about the patent and more about the appetite for the regulators to approve more products using this approach. And, and I think really... At this stage, you know, none of the, the Vanguard um, actively managed funds hold an ETF share class. So to date, it's always been um, around the passively managed products. This would also limit, uh, you know, the potential use case for it uh, to start. But also there are some regulatory issues that, that do remain. But it's clearly an attractive um, potential option and I think that will not stop a few from trying it. But ultimately, the SEC is going to have to approve these. But from an infrastructure perspective, it absolutely works. I mean, we have experience with this in the U.S., but also um, similar multi-class structures in Europe that, that we provide the infrastructure for. So it's quite straightforward, and the road is, is reasonably well-traveled there. Um, but, but again, some of the regulatory issues, uh, you know, still remain. And, and I think it's going to be a while before um, those are fully worked through and, and the SEC is satisfied to, to allow someone else to come to market behind Vanguard again once that patent expires. Yeah, the SEC angle is really interesting to me. And that a Financial Times piece I, I mentioned, they quoted an attorney who said that the entire barrier to entry here was the SEC staff and that they have concerns around uh, what, what they call class subsidization. And really what that boils down to is that 
you know, is this structure in the best interest of investors? So in, in other words, could the activities within the mutual fund share class negatively impact the ETF share class, as an example? So trading costs, taxes, those sorts of things. So I, I just that that's interesting. I don't know a lot of people have uh, have been talking about that. And it does seem like the SEC is going to be the gatekeeper here. Um, let, let me ask you this, Ben, sort of related to the share class discussion are mutual fund to ETF conversions. So we saw the first of these last year, right? Someone like uh, Dimensional has been very aggressive in this space. Are you still seeing a lot of momentum around these? Because to be honest, I feel like outside of DFA, I've been a little surprised we haven't seen more of these. I I know it's still early, but there just haven't been a ton of conversions yet. What are you hearing on this topic right now? Yeah, I'm not necessarily surprised we haven't seen more. But at the same time, we've been flooded um, at BNY Mellon with inquiries from clients. And the majority of inquiries are from issuers who are not currently in the ETF market or issuers who have a small presence and are looking to turn up the volume. So what are they asking for? Well, they're effectively doing some version of kicking the tires. How does it work? How do I manage the shareholders? What do the brokerage platforms say? Um, so we're in a unique position given our large footprint servicing ETFs, but we're also a large player in the mutual fund space and, and specifically transfer agency. And it's the transfer agency piece here that's really key, as that's the, the, the corner of the infrastructure that deals with the existing shareholder base. And that's really the critical element here. So, so my view, it's going to be a slow roll, but one that will start to roll faster downhill. Um, a, a good analogy that it's more like a slip and slide in your backyard, not a ski slope. But um, in either case, there's a chance of injury here. And in this case, uh, financial injury potentially for the asset managers who go through all the trouble and, and may not get to, to where they need to, to be. Um, but from the manager's perspective, it's, you know, the benefits are quite clear. Retain the assets, retain the track record, lower the operating costs and the tax benefits. But they have a lot of concern here about, you know, again, the platforms um, being able to play ball um, and, and help that conversion. There are issues regarding qualified money, um, such as 401k assets inside the mutual funds and, and the record keeper's ability to, that are, you know, to be wired properly to handle the ETFs. And I think there are some basic questions about how much this all costs um, and, you know, will their investment strategy um, that's currently in a mutual fund, port well into the ETF wrapper. Um, you know, the 40 Act rules apply to both, but not all mutual funds make great ETFs. Um, and then there's a bunch of details uh, that, that need to get fleshed out about fractional shares and, you know, shareholders who don't have brokerage accounts. So all of that is stuff that, you know, we, we can handle. But the questions are large, and, and it's more complicated than it may seem on the, on the surface. And again, it's not, not made for, for everybody, but the volume has been quite high uh, is still uh, here in the first part of this year. Your point on 401k plans, I think, is an important one, because I feel like with the mutual fund ETF conversions, 401ks may be the biggest hurdle in that a lot of mutual funds, obviously, they are prevalent in 401ks. And and then making that conversion is a little tricky. Whereas if, let's say we go back to the Vanguard share class structure, that solves that problem, right? Where you can keep your mutual funds in a 401k, but then have uh, ETFs and offer those elsewhere. Or perhaps you could just clone an existing mutual fund strategy in an ETF, which again, allows you to retain the mutual funds in the 401k. So I, I think that's gonna be interesting to see how technology 
and uh, and fund companies solve that challenge. Ben, uh, no surprise, we're running a little short on time here, but I, I can't miss discussing my favorite topic. So let's briefly discuss Bitcoin and crypto ETFs. And I, I guess I don't really have a direction for us here. Maybe you can just talk about uh, how the existing products out there have been functioning. Uh, I know you service the Canadian Bitcoin ETFs and, and some of the futures-based products. How do you feel like those are working, and where do you think the SEC stands on a spot Bitcoin ETF? Yep. Well, what would a ETF Prime episode be without a little banter on crypto? Exactly. ETF? So I'm I am honored to to get this question. Um, but I I would say, look, on the regulatory front, um, so much noise, so little action. So at this point, we wait. Um, as I'm sure you know, and all of your listeners know who listen, um, uh, you know, the Tucrium ETF, which was notable in its approval because it was the first time a 33-act product has gotten through uh, the SEC, um, has made sort of another small step right on this continuum um, and kind of you know, at least shattered the concept that only 40-act products need apply. But again, we're still talking about Bitcoin futures and don't seem any closer to a spot ETF at this point in the U.S., um, but you know, just quickly outside um, of the outside of the U.S., we've seen quite a bit of innovation, um, and we continue to see an incredible amount of product development coming out of Canada and Europe. It's it's kind of quite amazing to see what kind of choice and innovation is going on north of the border and across the Atlantic. From a infrastructure perspective. Um, you know, really, um, it, it's actually been quite boring compared to all of the excitement around the speculation regarding the, the regulatory side of things and the product development. The products have been functioning exactly as expected or as anticipated on our platform. And again, from a servicing standpoint, uh, you mentioned we, we do service um, the Canadian ETFs. We also are involved with Grayscale and many other spot Bitcoin hopefuls uh, in the U.S. And really, the path there is pretty well-traveled. There are some adjustments that, are need to be, that need to be made to support these products, but really, we're the dominant player in the 33-act space and, and have a, a, a very large portion of the market share for, for commodity products like GLD, SLV, you know, to, to the futures-based products like USO and DBC. And these products um, really are, you know, effectively the, the base case. And then you're just making the adjustments to be able to take in the Bitcoin price uh, or, or the Ethereum price, et cetera, and also connect with those digital asset custodians um, the same way we get a price for gold and uh, connect into the vault to be able to, to count the gold bars and, uh, and make sure they're there. So, again, well-traveled path. But on the regulatory front, you know, we wait. The next big, really big hurdle um, or, or big marker will be uh, when Grayscale comes up before the SEC uh, here in a couple months, uh, you know, that, that the industry is really, really looking for um, alongside a, a couple others that are, are still in the queue. Nobody knows how this is going to play out. But if you had to hazard a guess, you know, I have to ask you this. I mean, are we looking at this year for spot Bitcoin ETF approval, next year, 2024, 2035? <laughs> I mean, do you have any sense or is it just it's anybody's guess at this time? It's, it's, any, it's anybody's guess at this time. And, and again, there's really, even with this recent um, approval on the 33-act side, there's nothing new um, that would indicate um, that, that the SEC has kind of moved, uh, you know, kind of moved their position or at least 
been satisfied that many of the questions posed um, uh, have been answered, at least in their mind. And, and so um, I guess by, by simply stating that, maybe you could say that the time frame is push it, you've been pushed out. But again, there, there's been nothing new there that would give me any indication that, that, that an approval is imminent. Well, Ben, fantastic stuff this week. Uh, so great having you back on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot, Nate. Much appreciated. That was Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs, Asset Servicing at BNY Mellon.